0: Well, if you will remain standing for our reading of Scripture today. Um, Just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one, um, you'll find some little blue uh, paperback Bibles in the pew that we would love to give you as a gift if you do not own a Bible. And so would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? There we go. Uh, (laughs) Our Scripture reading for today comes out of Matthew 5 so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I I thank you that, that we get to be together again today, this Sunday. We only missed one week, but we still felt it. To not be together, to hear one another sing, to, to, to listen to your word preached is a, is, a, is a wound for us in our spiritual lives. We need to be together. And so I thank you that today we get, to, we get to gather together. But at the same time, we are cognizant and we recognize that there are so many families in our church right now that can't gather with us because of the COVID surge either because of their own vulnerability or because they did test positive, we, we recognize that they're in their house right now doing their own thing, feeling separated from the Sunday gathering, and I ask that you would just bless them, God, that you would meet them even on this Sunday where they can't gather with us, and that you would heal them. We pray that this new, this Omicron surge would soon enough, God, fall down at the same rate that it came up, and that you would move us forward through this as a church and as a city. And I pray now, God, as we turn to your word, as we listen to your word preached, I ask God that you would give us ears to hear, to, to see the, the vision that Jesus lays out for what a disciple is. We would see the, the brilliance of it, the invitation of it, and we would respond in kind. So would you help us in that? Would you unite your power with my weak words and cause fruit in our life together here at Icon? For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. My wife turned to me, both of us with noticeable goosebumps, and she says, wow, that one really got me. It was, a, it was a free night, and so like most normal couples, when it's free, we just choose to relax together and watch some TV. And I don't remember exactly what show or movie we were watching, but the show or the movie is not actually what gave us goosebumps. Surprisingly, it was a commercial Specifically, the new Apple commercial for the Apple Watch. Who here has seen that? Anybody? Great. Well, maybe we just watch more TV than everyone else, but that's okay. It is pure brilliance. (laughs) It, it, is, it is pure brilliance, this this new Apple Watch commercial. So, so the commercial uh, alternates between three different stories, and, and it's uh, you hear these panicked 911 callers, and, and each caller had just been in a, a serious accident or in a bad fall, or even one of them had been swept out to sea while he was on his paddleboard, and they were able to reach 911 because although they didn't have access to their phone, they can make a phone call in their Apple Watch. And it goes on with the, the panic calls come up until the moment you hear that, that people excitedly announce they can, they can see the authorities coming to their rescue. And the commercial ends with white text on a black screen and says this, with the help of their watch, Jason, Jim, and Amanda were all rescued in minutes. It's a brilliant commercial. <laughs> now, despite me being a Apple fanboy, I see no function for the Apple Watch, <laughs> I, I don't want it. But after that moment, with goosebumps and all, I did want one. <laughs> I, I wanted one, something that I see no real functionality in. I wanted one. What did Apple do to me that made me want to buy something that I don't actually need? Did they, did they tell me about how an Apple Watch can make a call? Did they just tell me that fact? no. Did they, run, did they run by me a bunch of data about how long the battery life was or how well its connectivity functions? No. Instead, they told me three stories about panicked people in emergency situations who were rescued because they had an Apple Watch they could call 911 on. They didn't tell me facts. They didn't win me over with data. They told me a story. And these stories is actually what what got me, what gave us goosebumps. Friends, story is a powerful, powerful thing. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but you are living your life right now based off of some great story. You are currently living into a story. Your, Your goals, your ambitions, your fears, doubts, your sources of shame, they are all riding along the plot line of some great story that you think is unfolding. Human beings are storied creatures. We are storied creatures. Without a story that connects our day-to-day experiences with some greater narrative or direction or conclusion, we we feel dry, we feel bored, we feel like our life isn't really amounting to anything. Because we are creatures that live by story, the best way to get us to do something, like Apple did, is to tell us some great story. If someone, I want to say, if you're taking notes, this is the line. If someone can place you in a story, they can get you to do anything. Let me give, some, let me, let me give an example. I'm sure you've heard this phrase, the wrong side of history. With questions like that of of sexuality, specifically Christians are constantly warned that if we don't change our views, we'll end up eventually on the wrong side of history. What is that phrase actually saying? It's saying that the culture's definition of sexuality is, is somehow the result of progress, which in this story will continue to unfold out into the future, and that if you don't get on board today your grandkids are going to look back and just think, what backwards, what backwards fools? They're going to look back with disdain. That phrase, the wrong side of history, is trying to pull you into a story where if you don't cave, if you don't change how you view things, you will end up as the villain. That phrase is trying to tell you a story. And because story is a powerful, du- uh, powerful tool, it has in many ways duped former followers of of Jesus. Story is a powerful thing, whether for better or for worse. If someone can place you in a story, they can get you to do anything. Now, why do I say all this? How does any of this connect with what Jesus is saying here? Well, I, I think if you pay attention to the movements of these verses, Jesus is using this exact same method of story in order to get his disciples to to be a certain way, in order to do a certain thing. Seeing as he created us, he knows how to motivate us. The son of God knows how we operate and what we need in order to really feel motivated, which is story. Jesus here brings his disciples into a story. Let's, let's explore that a little bit. Let's place ourselves in the story real quick so we can see what Jesus is trying to get across in these verses, okay? So right, right, right before this, if you remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus finished laying out his, his weird and scary Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, he calls blessed or flourishing many of the things that we would avoid or even call suffering. Things like meekness, poverty of spirit, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those those all don't sound very blessed or, or really feel like a flourishing life. But none of them are as scary as the last one in verse 11. If you have your Bible open, look at it with me. In verse 11, he says this. It's terrifying. Blessed are you, flourishing are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus lands the plane with that final beatitude, which understandably should frighten us all, should, should shake us awake. Jesus here seems to be like a, a pretty terrible salesman, here he is on the top of this mountain with his disciples ready to hear his greatest sermon and he chooses to invite them in to suffering. He chooses to invite them into persecution. Like actually invite them. Jesus is not using hyperbole here. He's not just being controversial for the sake of being controversial. He's inviting his disciples into suffering. And I know that, that we as Christians... Today, we, we, we hear that verse, and we, I think we just kind of skate on by it. We just skate on by with a confused nod, like, yeah, sure, you're Jesus, so I guess I should say you're right about that being blessed, about persecution being flourishing, but in reality, I don't really believe it. <laughs> None of us, at first glance, at first read, really believe what Jesus just said there in verse 11. None of us do. I don't. Consider, consider your own life. Consider your, your own job or your own circle of, of friendships. My bet is that many of you are a private Christian. Some of you are, are, are lovingly public or open about your faith. But many of us feel just just feel the sense of, of, of caution and fear about even mentioning the fact that we that we go to a church. Why is that? As understandable as it is, it's because we don't believe what Jesus just said in that verse. We don't think that's flourishing in any way. If we really thought that was blessing, we would not be afraid of being reviled, of being spoken ill of. We just don't believe it. And friends, I wanna say again, that makes perfect sense at first glance. The connection between blessing or flourishing with with choosing to be derided for your faith is not an obvious one. It's not an obvious connection. It makes sense that we wouldn't get that. We wouldn't see that or let alone believe it. And thankfully, Jesus knows that. He he, he knows that we won't receive that as blessing just because he said it. We, like the disciples, we we need some coaxing. If we're going to embrace intentional suffering because of our association with Jesus, Jesus knows that we better have some very solid reason to embrace that. We will will not suffer meaninglessly. If If we don't understand the meaning behind being persecuted for the name of Jesus, we just won't be public about our faith. We need to have a reason behind it. Which brings us to the context of these verses for today. Jesus gives these few sentences about salt and light in order to inject the potential of persecution with meaning. He tells a story about what a disciple is. And by doing that, provides a solid foundation of meaning that can help these disciples and us ourselves actually embrace that call to suffering for his namesake. He tells a story about what a disciple is in order to inject meaning, in order for us to see, okay, this is why this is flourishing. This is how I can see my path forward in persecution. He tells a story about it. So let's, 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 let's go into that. He, he does this first by identifying as uh, disciples as a specific character in the story. Do you see that? He uses the metaphor salt and light. Jesus identifies his disciples as being salt and light. Let's, let's explore together what that means. First, salt. What, what does it mean for Jesus' disciples to be the, the salt of the earth? So this, is, has been, this has been interpreted in a, in a lot of different ways and a lot of different ideas about it. The most consistent one, I think, is the idea that, you know, that, that, that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples that they are preserving agents. You see, back, back in Jesus' day, one of the main uses of salt was in order to preserve meat. They didn't have refrigerators, they didn't have freezers, and so they needed to keep their meat well and safe to eat, and so they used salt in order to preserve it. And so the interpretation goes that Jesus is here saying that the good works and convictions of his disciples will act as a preserving agent in a world that is always prone to decay. I think we've a lot of us maybe have heard that, but I, I don't think that's right. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's the right in, interpretation. First, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any other verse in the, in the New Testament that commands Christians to preserve what's in the world. You you wouldn't really find that. This this interpretation, I think, really only pops up with, with panicked Western Christians who think they have to preserve what they once had. But throughout the New Testament, Christians are not preserving agents, but rather witnesses. We don't preserve what is in the world. We testify to the world through contrast with the world. We're not here to preserve. We're here to testify. And so a much better and, I think, more simple interpretation of being the salt of the earth is the idea of distinction or differentiation. Salt obviously provides a a distinct taste to what is an otherwise bland meal. And I think this is what Jesus is hitting at here. Even his language of, I mean, come on, scholars, he says it in the text. How, if salt has lost its, say it with me. Well, first, taste. (laughs) See, this is why it's important to have the Bible open in front of you if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's right there in the text. So Jesus is here talking about the the, the distinction or the differentiation of salt. It adds some flavor to an otherwise bland meal. And so for Jesus's disciples to be the salt of the earth, it, it means that they provide a certain flavor of distinction, of differentiation in an otherwise bland world. And I use that last phrase intentionally. Bland world. I I wonder if you've ever considered how bland our world is today. How bland it is. We, we, We live in what seems like a very flashy world, We have computers in our pockets. We have global pathways of communication that can alert us to something happening on the other side of the world. If we have a question, we can find answers to it in a matter of seconds with Google. If we are hungry, we can open that same computer in our pockets and order some food while we sit on our couches. If we feel lonely, we can hop in an app and have a curated list of people to connect with. If we feel bored or stuck, we can hop in a plane and go fulfill our wanderlust. But for all its toys and tricks, life in the 21st century is bland. It is dull. It's all the same the same crisis of meaning. Everybody doesn't know what they're living for. The same crisis, the same pursuits and ambitions. Everybody wants the same thing. Everyone is chasing the same goal. Everyone's grinding toward the same thing. And even in our uniqueness, even when we think we are unique, we're not that special. We're still a part of this bland, sometimes subculture. Like yesterday, I had a a number of meetings uh, over coffee yesterday. And so I went through some different, you know, uh, coffee shops throughout Seattle. And each one of these, you know, they're like real Seattle coffee shops, which means they have real... Seattle baristas, if you know what I mean, Uh, they 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 look the part. And on that last coffee meeting, walking into another coffee shop and seeing another Seattle barista, I thought to myself, "You're the same. You look exactly the same as every other barista I've seen today." I know you think you're unique. I know you think you're different. I know you're trying to project that you're different and unique, but in reality you look exactly the same of every other barista I've seen today. Even in our differences, even when we feel like we're unique, all we're really doing is blending in with a particular subculture. Bland. Nothing stands out. Nothing excites. Nobody is different. And in this rote, routine, bland world, Jesus tells his disciples. Be distinct. Differentiate the flavor of your life from everything else that people are giving their lives to. Be distinct. Stand out. Provide a glimpse or a taste of a life that that isn't consumed with what everyone else is obsessed about. Jesus here identifies his disciples as the place where the world can see a life that means something still, a life that that seeks for something more than personal psychological happiness, a life that stands for more than what the current culture thinks, A, a life that isn't swayed and moved by the current demands of groupthink, a life that doesn't grovel under the immediate pleasure of sexual sin. A life that stands out, that isn't consumed by what it can have, but gives from the heart. A life that isn't measured by toys, trips, and Teslas, but measured by joy in the Lord. Be different, Jesus says. Stand out. Be different. Have a different flavor in your life that stands out from all the other all the other bland things that these people are chasing, all the, all the same pursuits, all the same methods, all the same toys, stand out, Jesus says. And in order to drive the point home, Jesus goes on to say what happens when salt loses its saltiness. It gets thrown out because its purpose can no longer be fulfilled. It becomes a useless thing. Now, the phrase Jesus uses here for losing saltiness is is interesting. Within that phrase, Jesus uses a, (laughs) a pretty harsh Greek word, moroni. To lose saltiness is moroni. And this is where we get the word, can you guess? Huh? Moron, that's right. After identifying his disciples as the salt of the earth, providing distinction in an otherwise bland world, Jesus says that for a Christian to not be that is moronic. (laughs) Gentle and lowly, huh? Why is that? Why does Jesus use such strong language to to, to get his point across? Let me put it this way a Christian doesn't lose their saltiness by accident. The distinction of a disciple doesn't fade away, but is given away. This happens when when Christians see how the biblical worldview is in direct contrast in many ways to the prevailing culture. And rather than leaning into that as their purpose of being salt, they accommodate the prevailing culture. They accommodate, they give up their distinction, they give up their saltiness in order to be relevant. And this is moronic because it does not get us what we think it will. The reason Jesus can call us as Christians losing our saltiness as the equivalent of being morons is because we're, we're making a false calculation. We think that by accommodating the people around us, we're going to be more relevant. We think that by accommodating those around us, we'll actually invite people in. Accommodating our culture by losing our distinction, putting our hands up and just, and just trying to be a, a neutered version of Christian spirituality does not get us the relevance or even the attention that we think it will. It doesn't work. By losing our distinction... By giving up our saltiness in order to be relevant or even likable, we sow the seeds of our own irrelevance. That's what happens. Disciples or churches that give up their distinction accommodate themselves to death. It doesn't end with what we think it does. It ends with us fading into the gray of our colorless, bland world. We become like everyone else. Let me give you a very real world example of this. uh, Mainline progressive Christianity, which is a a category of, of Christianity, which has accommodated itself to the culture for decades now, is the fastest declining sector of Christianity in America. Losing the distinction of the Christian worldview has not won for them what they thought it would. In fact, it's won quite the opposite. I think it's, this might be a little too on the nose, but I'm going to say it. I think it's funny that when you go to visit a progressive mainline congregation that is in this massive building that has accommodated itself to the prevailing culture for decades thinking it would bring more people in, all it is is a dozen 65-year-old white people. It's almost as if it's moronic. Go to a service on a Sunday and you'll find a massive building filled with very few people with very little results of what they thought it would. It's almost like losing our distinction didn't get them what they thought it would. Let's, let's make this really local. And this is, this is a story that hurts me. About a mile and a half here, down that way, there's an old church named First Presbyterian Church of Seattle. And I say old church, not because of how long it's been there, but for the fact that it's no longer there. They have a massive building. They have a massive church building right off of I-5. And this this congregation is, is one of those that, for decades, have sown the seeds of their own irrelevance and now are no longer there. But their building still is. It's off of I-5, directly across from downtown. I actually emailed them, you know, see if they wanted the little church plant to continue on the legacy of that building. I didn't hear back. <laughs> Got to shoot my shot, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. That church building is scheduled to be demolished. And can you take a wild guess about what's going to replace it on that land there? Apartments. If you want an in-your-face illustration of what happens when the church loses its distinction, gives up its saltiness, it becomes like everything around it. The legacy of that building, gone. And now it gets the privilege of just being another apartment building in the middle of the city like everything else around it. A disciple of Jesus is distinct providing flavor to an otherwise bland world. And to give that up, to give that over, is moronic. Sowing the seeds of our own irrelevance. Friends, blending into blandness is never a win. Now, quickly, Jesus extends this metaphor into that uh, of light, if you look further down in the text. Not only are his Disciples, a distinct flavor in this world. They are also light in the midst of darkness. And, and, and this is a, another metaphor that, that works off the basis of, of contrast, right? But instead of providing distinct flavor like salt, here, the disciples of Jesus are, are meant to provide a distinct light in an otherwise dark world. Now today, we, we have access to, to thousands of watts just at the flip of a switch. But in Jesus's day, light was really precious. (laughs) Light was really precious. Taking a a journey through the mountains just outside Jerusalem was not really a safe thing. They didn't have the, the glow of some massive downtown like we have. If you get a few miles outside of the city, you are in complete darkness. And on a journey like that, going through dangerous ground, dangerous terrain in the middle of the night, pitch black, you would be thrilled to see a city set on a hill, like Jesus says here. To journey through the darkness and be afraid in complete darkness, you you would be thrilled to see a city on a hill shining a light, guiding you into its gates, inviting you in to safety. And here we, we see that Jesus tells his disciples to not just be salt that differentiates from the bland culture, but be light that provides an escape from the darkness. You see, if, if we were only salt, if we were only distinct disciples, we would be jerks, <laughs> boasting of our distinction. But if we are also light, then that means that by our very nature, we are inviting. We're not just saying to the world that we're different, but, but, but what we're saying, come into the safety of this difference. Come into the safety of this people because in here, there is light. Escape from that darkness. Come, come into this light. Light to guide, light to clarify, light to warm. Disciples of Jesus are different. We are meant to be distinct, but it's never a difference that draws a line between who is welcome and who is not. No, it's a difference that swings wide its gates and welcomes people into the safety of that light. While keeping our distinction the convictions of the Christian faith, not giving that up, we at the same time, Jesus says here, are to swing wide our gates, are to shine our light together in order to invite people out of the darkness into the safety of where we dwell. Bring them into clarity. Bring them into warmth. Friends, I hope, I, I hope you see the brilliance of what Jesus lays out in these verses. It's brilliant. What Jesus describes his disciples as, as salt and light, is actually a very relevant antidote to the modern day church today. The church today, like our culture, tragically, sadly, grievously, is often split between the liberals and the conservatives. And I don't mean politically only. What I mean is practically, philosophically, missionally. The the liberal church and the conservative church are trying to do very different things. The liberal church, as we talked about, gives up its saltiness, loses its distinction, while still, let's give credit where credit is due, (laughs) trying to be a light that welcomes people in trying to be a light that brings people in for those who are in the darkness, whereas the conservative church boasts of its distinction and contrarian nature in its saltiness and yet gives up its inviting light to those who are in darkness. Jesus here commands both. Jesus commands both. Be distinct. Do not sow the seeds of your own irrelevance by accommodating the prevailing culture, and also, at the same time, be a safe light for those who are traversing in darkness. Do both. Be distinct. And be a safe home for the spiritually weary traveler. It's brilliant. And it's a brilliance that I think is proved by the desired conclusion to this story that he's invited them into See that conclusion in the text, that those who see your good works might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Live in this distinction of saltiness while putting down a welcome mat into the safety of light. You can't be ignored. More than that, more importantly, your God cannot be ignored. A life like this A church like this is a disruptive witness that turns some of those persecutors there in verse 11 into seekers. That's where Jesus connects it. It's astounding that these people who before were reviling and persecuting and speaking ill of, Jesus at the end of this basically says, if you do this, if you hold these two things together, if you remain distinct disciples and you invite the weary traveler out of darkness, some of those persecutors that you were so afraid of will become seekers because they will tell a story of a God who can't be ignored. Jesus is brilliant. So where, where are, are you today, friend? Have you caved Have you exchanged your distinction for bland cultural capital? Or maybe you've firmly held on to the Christian's convictions, but have lost the warmth. You're all salt and no light. I assume the majority of us in here are in one of those two categories. And friends, with a, with a message like this, I found that anytime, people start, anytime preachers start talking about mission and people inviting people out, it's purely guilt-ridden. I don't want to do that. I'd hate to send you out with a new burden for you to go get better. Go get more salty. Go put on some more light. A new challenge to be salty, a new rebuke to get back your warm light. A, a challenge or rebuke is not wholly necessary, only an urgent reminder, which is this. Our distinction as Christians, our saltiness, our safe light is all secondhand. We don't create it, we receive it. Our distinction comes from the fact that through Jesus Christ, you have been plucked out of the gray world of sin and brought into the bending colors of relationship with God. That's why you're distinct. The light that you shine is shining out of the fact that where, where you once dwell in darkness, you have come to call home the safe light of grace. Today, would you, would you just reflect on all that Jesus has done for you. There's, there's no need for new burdens, there's no need for new challenges to get out there and get salty. Get out there and get light, filled with light. That's too quick. First, what you need to do is retreat back into the safety of grace and remember what God has done for you. You wanna grow in your distinction as a disciple? You want to grow in the light that you give to those who are weary travelers in our world? Remember and dwell upon the grace of Jesus Christ. You try to do it on your own, you're going to get exhausted. You're going to be a distinct jerk (laughs) or an indistinct light. But if you sit there at the feet of Jesus, if you abide in the vine of Christ, and remember the grace that he has poured over you, That will slowly move your heart to be this salt and light. That will encourage you. That will equip you. That will energize you to live into this great story where persecutors become seekers and our great God becomes unignorable. Let's pray to that end. Father, I thank you that the distinct son of God the light of the world came to save us. And there are many there are many areas of our life that this message could overlap with and just bring shame or just bring self-determination. God save us from that. First, let us remember and dwell upon the grace that is in Jesus Christ, the distinct son of God who came to pluck us from that gray world of sin and bring us into the bending colors of relationship with you again. The light of the world who has shone upon our own personal darkness and our own spiritual weariness led us into the gates. Help our hearts to feel that. And from there, make us a people that are salt and light that in our witness, in our demonstration, you become unignorable. Give us that grace, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online,